Black Dog Institute is a global pioneer in the identification, prevention and treatment of mental illness and the promotion of well-being. In this podcast, Professor Philip Mitchell discusses the role of antidepressants in the treatment of depression. This podcast is part of your predisposing activity for the Dealing with Depression or Dealing with Rural Depression workshop. So I'm joined today by Professor Philip Mitchell, who's the head of the School of Psychiatry here at the University of New South Wales. And we're going to be talking together about antidepressants today. So thank you, Professor Mitchell, for joining me here. It's my pleasure, Varen. So we might start just talking in a real general sense, um, thinking about what generally do you feel is the role of antidepressants in helping someone living with depression? Mm. I, I think the, it, the antidepressants have an important role. I think as time has gone on over the last few decades, we've become, I think, you know, more thoughtful and aware of what the appropriate place is. Um, in, in my own practice is that both psychological treatments and antidepressants um, play important roles, complementary roles. Um, in, in my own work, for patients with milder depressions or where there's very obvious psychosocial contributions to the depression, my preference is that psychological treatments are the, the mainstay for that particular patient. Um, I might do some simple psychological work myself. Um, I don't personally have time to do more formal psychological treatment, so I have a number of um, clinical psychologists that I respect um, and find that patients get on with and um, appreciate their skills. So I work with a relatively limited number of psychologists that I feel comfortable referring to. Um, Antidepressants, in my experience, can be on their own or in conjunction with psychological treatment. I think that old dichotomy, it's either psychological treatment or antidepressants, I don't find that terribly helpful at all. Um, to me, the antidepressants are when patients are, have a you know, um, moderate or severe level of depression, so the severity is part of it, um, but also where perhaps it's less clearly tied to what's happening in the person's life. Um, another aspect is the quality of the, of the depression. Um, I think melancholic depression, in my experience, is pretty uncommon, even in you know, the classic form of melancholic depression, but where they have some of those biological features, significant appetite, sleep disturbance, maybe you know, significant slowing or agitation, that, that sort of picture I'd be, you know, be thinking pretty early on of an antidepressant. Um, if I have a patient where clearly they have bipolar disorder and they're depressed, I'm going to be thinking of an antidepressant there. So it's a sort of mix of the severity of the depression, the characteristics of the depression, um, where the depression seems to be um, sort of excessive for the circumstances of the patient. Um, but at the same time, some patients you know, will need psychological assistance. So it's a bit of mix and match. We've had a lot of a lot of airplay in the media around are antidepressants effective? Are they yes. not effective? Just recently, there's been some releases around yes. that. What are your thoughts about that discussion? I, I I have no doubt they're effective, both for my own clinical experience and also my reading of the literature. I I think we probably exaggerated their effectiveness when they came out, and as we've got more experience, you know, we realise that perhaps. 
your average patient doesn't benefit as much as we thought they did. But I still think that for many patients, antidepressants can make a huge difference in their lives. Um, you know, I, I think the difficulty is antidepressants are used for many patients with mild depression that will settle spontaneously or where there's significant issues happening that they would benefit either from simple or more complex counselling. Um, but my own experience is that you know, I've seen many people's lives you know, either turned around or substantially change because of antidepressants. And, you know, you get a feel when something's a placebo or expectancy response. And I think that, you know, I have no doubt that these work. And so going further with that, if you make a decision to use an antidepressant mm. for someone, how do you go about deciding which antidepressant <laughs> is the, the one to start with? Yeah, this is tricky. Yeah. Um, Look, I, I've become fairly simple in my thinking about this. Um, I think for a first antidepressant, I find the SSRIs are my first choice, that they work predictably well, the side effect burden is less than some of the other agents. You know, for example, SNRIs I think are a little bit more effective than the SSRIs, but also they have a bit more side effect burden to them. So. I, I, I'm fairly simple-minded about this. I, you know, like the SSRIs. You need to be playing around sometimes the side effects of one, and we'll talk about different SSRIs. Doesn't match a patient. You might need to move around a bit. But I find, you know, that most patients do well with an SSRI. Yeah. Yeah. And if you decide to go ahead and prescribe an antidepressant for a person. What sort of rationale do you usually give people around why you're prescribing or what the antidepressant will do for them? What, what I say to patients is this is to relieve the symptoms. Um, this is not going to change what's happening in your life if there's been triggers for the depression or if there's thought styles you have that make you more prone to getting depressed. That's the psychological aspect of it. Um, but I think that you need some assistance with reducing the symptom burden and severity and to me that's the role of the antidepressants. I, I worry when antidepressants are the only treatment used because it invalidates the person's personal experience of perhaps the contributors to their depression. So I think you need to be understanding what's the meaning and you know what's the explanation for the depression because there often is in my experience even with melancholic depression it's often triggered by things you know an older person who has retired and is coming to grips with that, or someone whose spouse has died or has become unwell. But even the more severe depressions are often precipitated or triggered. So the, the whole issue of depression coming out of the blue, out of the ether, I think is pretty uncommon in my experience. You see there's a context. So you need to understand or try to understand as much as you can why that person's depressed. But you need to alleviate the symptoms. And to me, that's what the antidepressants are about. And that's what I tell the patient. Yeah. And together with that, uh, what do you think are the important um, pieces of information we need to impart to people when they're starting on some antidepressant treatment? The, the first thing is that this is not going to work overnight. So it's not like a pain tablet um, you know, for your arthritis or whatever. Um, that There's usually a delay of at least a few weeks. And... And, and also the, the full effect can take up to one to two months, you know. So while 
we, we think in terms of these t- working over one or two weeks, that's the beginning of the response. And so I say to people, look, you know, I think it's a good chance in a few weeks you'll be feeling better, but it's going to take at least a month before you get the full benefit of the antidepressant. So I tell them that, um, and, and I think that's really important because you know, otherwise they're going to think I should be better tomorrow. The, the, the other thing is that with any of the antidepressants that have a strong serotonin effect, like SSRIs and even SNRIs, um, that they often get um, fairly immediate side effects. And the, the, I think one of the big ones is nausea. And that that usually settles pretty quickly. And it was interesting when the SSRIs first came um, in, onto the market in the early 1990s, I found a lot of patients were just stopping them. And then I realised that it was the nausea, because no one likes nausea. But I learned that if you'd say to the patient, within a few days the nausea will either go away or start to settle, I found patients were sticking with, with the medication. So I think that to go through some of the side effects, I think that's a very common one, probably underestimated, but in clinical experience that's very frequent. And, and just to be very frank with them about the common side effects, I, I think people are more willing to tolerate medications if there's no surprises. Um, I think we worry that we'll put patients off if we go through, and I don't go in minutiae of your rare effect, but just the common ones. Um, so they're, they're sort of the issues. And also to say, um, you know, we, we might need to, you know, either you and me or seeing a psychologist to address the psychological aspects of what's going on. So I think they're probably the main messages I'd give a patient. And the other thing, thinking about it, is we need to talk about suicidal thoughts. Um, I, I go into quite a bit of detail to get a sense of whether the patient's got an intent to harm themselves. Um, I, I think it's, I've, I've learned over the years when you say to a patient, do you have any thoughts of harming yourself or suicidal thoughts? They interpret that as, do I really intend to kill myself? Um, so what I learned is if you say, well, look, in my experience, the vast majority of people who are depressed do have some suicidal thoughts, but most people don't intend to do it. And they find that quite distressing. And then when you open it up like that, most people will acknowledge, well, look, I have had thoughts of harming myself. And in my experience, 90 to 95% of people who are depressed do have some degree of suicidal thoughts. So you need to have that as a very open, frank part of the discussion. Um, and, and I you know, all, all also want to know, well, if you get those thoughts, what stops you harming yourself? And often it's um, you know, family, spouse, kids, you know, their you know, religious belief system. But you know, there's usually some protective effect, so you need to play to the sort of the positives in their lives. So you know, we're aware because the antidepressants take a few weeks to start working, then you've got to make sure the patient you know, isn't at risk for significant self-harm. Um, so they're probably the main messages mm. I talk about, Beren. And following from that, the idea that people could become more at risk on the initiation of therapy yes. in terms of suicide, is that something you've seen in your experience? Look, um, I've seen the occasional patient. I think that's pretty rare in my experience. I, I think that's spoken about a lot. You, you do get some patients who get heightened anxiety at the beginning, and that's a serotonin effect. But I've seen very few patients where 
you know, I've really been convinced that the antidepressant has worsened the suicidal potential. I, I think that's very uncommon. You certainly do see it occasionally, it, but it's more common to see increase in anxiety or agitation rather than true suicidal thoughts. So I, I think that's a bit overblown in the literature, in my experience. Yeah. And in terms of length of treatment, uh, what do you usually tell people about how long you'd like them to keep using the antidepressant for? Um, if it's a first episode of significant depression, what I, what I would say to a patient was would be that if you get better with this particular antidepressant, I'll be recommending you stay on it at least six to nine months. Um, that's to stop the patient relapsing if you um, um, prematurely stop the medication. So for a single episode, I would say six to nine months. I mean, we know in practice, most patients, you're lucky if it's a few months. Um, if the patients had prior episodes of depression, um, so they've got a recurrent pattern of illness, um, you're probably looking at, you know, longer. Um, for some patients, they, they need long-term antidepressants. I think most people balk at that. Um, and, and I think most patients, like ourselves, can only think of the next few years. I mean, to think lifetime, particularly for a young person, it's just fantasy land. So, so if someone's had recurrent depression, my, my comment would be, look, it may be that these medications can help prevent you having future episodes, because we know the antidepressants are preventive as well as acute treatments. Um, then we might be looking at you being on this over the next few years and just see whether that makes a difference to how frequently you're becoming depressed. And following on from that, a question that often comes up from patients is if I stay on this longer term, is it going to harm me? Is it going to cause any health problems? Well, the, the worry that people have is will they become dependent, mm -hmm. um, physically or psychologically dependent? Um, I think that's uncommon. Um, certainly some patients do get discontinuation syndromes, but it's different to dependency. I, I think a lot of patients don't really understand the difference between an antidepressant and a benzodiazepine, where you can, you know, can clearly become dependent, and that's one of the real risks with long-term benzodiazepines. So that's another issue which I'll often address um, with the patient early on in the course of treatment, that these are not anti-anxiety drugs, they're not benzodiazepines. Um, you don't become physically dependent on them. Um, a small number of people do have trouble coming off them and the ones, the medications most likely to do that are amongst the SSRIs, paroxetine or Arapax, was pretty notorious. We don't use it that much these days. And among the newer ones, or relatively newer ones, effects or can be pretty difficult sometimes to get off. Um, but these are issues of withdrawal or discontinuation. They're not indicative of dependence. And I think you need to have that explanation with people that the withdrawal symptoms does not equate to addiction. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of other um, long-term effects, I think a lot of patients worry, is this going to affect my brain if I'm on long-term medications? Um, I think that's been looked at pretty carefully. and. Um, the, there's no evidence to me of any long-term effects of the antidepressants. Um, we need to be attuned to potential side effects of all these medications, but in terms of any change in brain functioning or any 
systemic effects of these illness. In general, they're, they're pretty straightforward, simple medications. So. so perhaps we'll go down more specifically to mm. talk about antidepressants. Um, it would be good, could you outline for our listeners perhaps what the different classes of antidepressants are and kind of what the differences might yes. be between them? okay. So the, the most commonly used antidepressants in Australia and most Western countries are the SSRI antidepressants. Uh, we have in Australia um, five different molecules within that. So you've got your fluoxetine or Prozac, um, you've got um, sertraline, which is Zoloft. And I'm aware there's many generics for these, um, um, paroxetine, Arapax, citalopram, uh, cipramil, escitalopram, lexapro, and there's a sixth, which is uh, fluvoxamine or luvox, not widely prescribed. They, they do have some differences between them. So um, Luvox would be the most sedative of, of the antidepressant, of the SSRI. It's not widely used, but it's clearly more sedative. Prozac tends to be more agitating. Um, the other thing about Prozac is that it's got a very long half-life. So whereas the other ones, the half-life's roughly a day. So it means if you think of wash out most medications wash out within five half-lives. So, you know, most SSRIs, essentially within a week, you know, it's washed out of the system, whereas Prozac, the half-life is about a week. So it means you've got five weeks for the washout. In many cases, that's not a critical issue, but if you're wanting to change from one medication to another, it's a bit of a hassle. Um, the, in, in my experience, Zoloft causes... I like Zoloft, but it can cause um, GIT problems. So some patients get diarrhoea, um, um, abdominal pain and discomfort. Paroxetine, also Arapax, is a bit more sedative and is, um, that can also be more likely to cause withdrawal problems. The half-life's a little bit shorter with paroxetine, that's why you get the um, the, the withdrawal problems. The, the, the quicker it washes out, the more likely you are to get withdrawal problems. So there's sort of the sort of in a nutshell some of the main differences between the different um, SSRIs. It's good to be familiar with at least a few drugs within a class and if you look at the studies of effectiveness and their tolerability, the SSRIs there's not a huge amount of difference. I'm talking about, I've spoken about some of the subtle profile differences but in general the efficacy is pretty much the same in the tolerability. So I think become familiar with a few different um, agents. I mean, personally, and it probably reflects the fact that I was around when these came on the market in the early 90s, so I've sort of, my favourites tend to be Zoloft, Cipramil, Lexapro is quite good as well. But I don't, I don't think there's any good science. I think this is just you become familiar, you get used to the dosage, you get used to the side effect profile. So I think as in other areas of medicine, whether it's antihypertensives, whatever, that you're familiar with a few drugs within a class and also drugs from different antidepressant classes. Um, if we look at the SNRIs, so my practice is if a patient doesn't respond to an SSRI to go to an SNRI, it's interesting that the science says it's just as effective to go to another SSRI. I find that a bit odd. I, I like to change classes, but... You know, the research literature said probably doesn't make any difference and some of my colleagues will move from one SSRI to another. But anyway, the SNRIs, um, 
I think they're a little bit more effective, but also the side effect burden is a little bit higher. Um, so there you've got the, the three main drugs. So you've got venlafaxine, which was the original introduced SNRI. You've got the metabolite of that desvenlafaxine, which is Pristique. And also the more recent one is Geloxetine, which is Cymbalta. Um, I find all of them, you know, drugs that work well. You know, my own practice is Effexor or Cymbalta, but I don't think there's any logic, you know, for this. So again, the same principle, get familiar with at least one or two of that class. Um, the, the tricyclics are an older class. Um, because a lot of my practice is more complex and difficult depressions, I find that I have some patients that don't respond or when they come to me, they haven't responded to the neuroagent. So I, I, I think that it's important um, to be familiar with um, at least one tricyclic because I think there are some patients who will only respond to those. And, and also you'll inherit patients on these drugs anyway. The, the tricyclic I prefer is nortriptyline or allegron. Um, it's less anticholinergic than the others, so the side effects don't tend to be as severe as, you know. I think good to be familiar with at least one tricyclic. There, the, the worries are things like cardiac effects, you know, on cardiac rhythm. Some of them also can cause um, orthostatic hypotension. Um, so you've got to be careful in patients with significant physical sort of morbidity, particularly cardiac illness. So, um, you know, you, in those sort of patients, you probably try to avoid a tricyclic if possible. But I, I, I still think there's a, a place, albeit limited, for the tricyclics. While we're talking about older drugs, the old MAOIs, um, I think, um, have become mainly specialist prescription drugs. Um, my worry is amongst my specialist colleagues, many of them don't feel comfortable prescribing these. And I, like a number of my colleagues who see more complex presentations, can all give a list of several patients at least whose lives have changed around being on an old MAOI. I've seen some patients who didn't even respond to ECT whose depression has been completely controlled with an old MAOI. Um, there's also a number of other drugs, antidepressants introduced in recent years that are sort of not within classes, they're more sort of within their own class. So you've got metazapine or abanza, um, you've got agamelatin, um, you've got more recently vortioxetine or brintilex, which is interesting in the US, it's going to be trintilex because brintilex sounds um, like a, um, I think an antiplatelet drug. There's another drug which is very similar. So the FDA changed it from Brintilex to Trintilex. I think we're still getting a feel for these drugs as to what their place is. You know, my own experience, and, and it's sort of tricky because a lot of these aren't on PBS, like Avanza is, but Agamelatin, which is Valtoxin, isn't. Vortioxetine um, or Brintilex isn't. So that means you're not going to use them very much. Um, you know, I, my own feeling is that no efficacy benefit compared to the other ones that we have, you know, so, you know, what's the role? I'm not sure. I tend to use them when patients aren't responding or can't tolerate, you know, some of the more mainstream SSRI and SNRIs. It's probably selling them short. 
Valdoxin maybe helps sleep a bit more. You've got to be aware of the hepatic problems um, that you really should do liver function tests before you start someone on agamelatin because that can um, cause hepatic dysfunction. I think that probably wasn't sufficiently communicated when that came on the market. You know, so it's a bit hard to know with the new ones what their place is and also tricky because of costing issues with drugs that haven't landed on the PBS. If we um, try and advise young doctors around um, dosing, yeah. um, obviously we don't have time to go into every individual drug, but as kind of in terms of the principles of dosing, what is, what's some of the advice that you could give around Well, the, if you look at the SSRIs, for example, the, they, the dosing um, for the tablets was premised around the, um, the effective dose. So, for example, you look at, um, you know, Zoloft comes in 50 and 100 milligram tablets. The average effective dose is in that range, 50, 75, 100. Um, Cipramil, at 20 milligram tablets, most patients respond to 20 or 40. The, when they came out, the... The, the, the studies suggested there was no benefit in increasing the dose, but I clinically, most of us have found that there were enough patients that benefited when you increased the dose that it was worthwhile pushing it up a bit. Um, and I think there's been you know, supportive evidence from the research that there probably is benefit for some patients in increasing the dose. The issue is how far you push it. Um, and I think the difficulty is the high doses can cause substantial side effects for these. So with those medications, for example, you know, most patients I have on Zoloft would be on, you know, 100 to 200 milligrams. You know, you occasionally push it higher, but I've had very little joy in doing that. You know, Cepramil 20 to 40, Lexapro 10 to 20. So it's either the average dose or a little bit above that. Um, it, it, when you push it high, you know, you, you, you're pushing outside the evidence and also just my own clinical experience is you push doses too high, it's often more a sign of desperation rather than there being substantial likelihood of benefit and you, you're often going to cause more side effects anyway. In terms of how quickly you change the dose, um, if we use say Zoloft as an example, I'll, I'll get someone up to 100 milligrams within a week. So I might start off with 50, because if you push, if you give them a big dose too quick, some people get quite bad nausea um, and occasionally vomiting. So I would increase the dose over at least four to seven days and then sit on that dose for, you know, another few weeks. I think the issue of increasing dose every week is not logical because when you increase the dose, it's going to take at least two to three weeks to get a feel for whether the patient's going to respond to that higher dose. Um, and, and that brings up the issue is how long do you stick with an antidepressant before you give up on it? My, my practice and advice would be usually give it at least a month, if not six weeks. Um, that's if the patient's tolerating it. I think if there's no glimmer of response within a month, you're probably unlikely to get benefit, particularly if you've gone up to a reasonable but not a high dose. So, you know, I'd be saying at least a month, but, I, you know, I wouldn't push on for several months, you know. So I'd probably say if there's no movement of the depression within four to six weeks, I'd be doing something different, either changing to another antidepressant or augmenting the antidepressant with something else. Yeah. 
So staying with the idea of augmenting, can yes. you explain a bit what augmenting is? And yeah, yeah. augmenting is probably more done within pro- specialist practice okay. than in general practice. So the, the principle is that you have your antidepressant and either they haven't responded or they're partially responded. And the evidence for augmenting is best if there's been partial but insufficient response. So the, the two medications where the best evidence for um, augmenting. So we're saying augment that you're strengthening the antidepressant capacity of your original antidepressant by adding another medication to that. So the the really the first one where that was shown where where, where that effect was shown was adding lithium. Um, now I think that's hardly ever used in, in in general practice. I think most general practitioners are a bit wary of lithium. It's a bit of a complicated drug to use, but it's one of, one of those augmenting strategies. And this, I just highlight, this is not for bipolar. This is for unipolar patients. Most of the research was done. Um, that, um, and these were placebo-controlled studies. They first came out in the sort of the mid to late nineteen eighties. So it's sort of a it's a well-established literature, um, and those studies um, demonstrated that within about a month, um, the the likelihood of response was better on adding lithium to placebo. And in my clinical experience, when I use it, you know, around thirty to forty percent. And I tend to be fairly selective patients with significant levels of depression, maybe some significant, you know, physical melancholic type features. But you know, I. My hit rate's about 30 or 40%. So I think it's one of those robust things. You, do, you don't need the blood levels as high as you would say for someone with bipolar. So the level's usually around 0.4 to 0.6 millimole per litre. Probably the one that people find easier would be the, the other robust literature is adding antipsychotics um, to antidepressants. And this is not for someone with a psychotic depression. I must admit I'm a bit reluctant to use antipsychotics in a depressed patient, um, but again, it, it's 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 a good literature. I, I just think you've got to balance the adverse effects of antipsychotics. You know, and we all increasingly worry about you know weight gain, metabolic syndrome, diabetes with antipsychotics, let alone the potential of you know, extrapyramidal side effects. I, and lastly, GPs are often concerned about switching, about mm. prescribing an antidepressant and pushing someone into hypomania or mania. Yes. How concerned should GPs be about switching? It, it's been a very controversial area. So the, the, the big issue is, is it safe if you've got a patient with clearly established bipolar to use an antidepressant? Um, and I think it's been quite vexatious and at times really quite emotional debate. Um, it was interesting, I, I was involved in an international task force of people around the world that had researched and thought about depression in bipolar or the use of antidepressants. And the recommendations of that task force and, you know, that they reviewed the literature and only gave recommendations from the group if there was 85% agreement from the group. And the, the, the recommendations were that if the patient's on a mood stabiliser, then it's acceptable to use an antidepressant to treat depression if they're on a mood stabiliser. And while the literature you know, isn't as great as you'd like it to be, there are a lot of holes in this scientific literature, but I think, to me, the converging evidence is 
that if you got a patient stabilised on something like lithium or valproate epilum or you know another mood stabiliser, then the chances of that patient switching into a manic or hypomanic episode are really very small. Um, and, and in my own clinical experiences, I think this is a very uncommon experience. And certainly some patients are very sensitive to this. Um, the, the no-no is a patient where you've got a clear history of bipolar and they're not on a mood stabiliser. You don't use an antidepressant as monotherapy. You're really risking it for that particular patient. Um, I think what it's led to is clinicians losing their confidence prescribing antidepressants for people with bipolar. I think antidepressants can be very effective in bipolar depression. They're probably not as effective as we'd like them to be, but again, they can you know, be life-changing for people. So I'm very comfortable prescribing antidepressants for people with bipolar, and I think that there's a consensus internationally that that's probably a reasonable thing to do. When you want to change someone from one antidepressant to another, what are some of the principles to be aware of in doing that? Um, the, the, the issue of timing of switching from one antidepressant to another, I think is much an art as a science. Um, there are some quite useful tables to guide you. So the, um, the psychotropic drug guidelines from the, um, the Victorian Therapeutic Group, used to be the Victorian Drug Use um, Advisory Committee, um, and these, I think, have been reproduced in Australian Prescriber. Um, if you can get access to those, I, th I think that they can be quite helpful. So they take into account the half-life of medications, um, but also the seriousness of the potential adverse effects. So, you know, the ones that would be you know, particularly worrying would be switching to and from one of the old MAOIs. Now, I'm aware in primary care that's pretty uncommon, but you know that's the real nasty one if you get it wrong, because in the early days when the SSRIs came on the market, people just didn't really understand the, 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 the danger of that. And there were a few patients that died because they were either commenced on SSRIs in conjunction with old MAOIs or there hadn't been sufficient washout one way or the other. Um, I think with the others, you know, the, the guidelines usually are suggesting at least three or four days, if not a week, washout in between. Um, you've got to be aware with, um, uh, with fluoxetine or Prozac, that's a very long half-life, so you're going to have, you know, a reasonable amount of um, Prozac in the bloodstream for up to five weeks after stopping it. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, the, the, they're quite useful guidelines and they deal with you know, within class switching or between antidepressant class switching. So rather than go through each of those in detail, I think that they can be very useful because I think for clinicians this can be quite tricky. And the balance is between not wanting to cause problems with interactions, but on the other side, you don't want to lose control of the depressed patient. So I think that can be often quite tricky for clinicians, but those tables I think can be quite helpful. Yeah. How quickly do you tend to bring people down from their dose? Like, is, is there a the speed of there? reduction? Yeah. yeah, yeah. In terms of how quickly you reduce the dose, um, I think the probably the most difficult is the SNRIs with um, you know venlafaxine, Effexor in particular. Um, you know, I've had some patients who are just on their normal dose and they miss one tablet 
and within a few hours they get a rapid severe withdrawal syndrome. Um, so getting patients off you know, the SNRIs, particularly if they've been on them a long time and at a high dose, I think you need to graduate the withdrawal. Um, if, if someone is just on a average lowish dose, say 20 milligrams of Cipramil, I wouldn't feel any need to reduce down to 10 or 5. I'd just stop and, you know, most patients won't get withdrawal anyway. If, if the patient gets withdrawal, then you need to go back to the starting point and slowly cut the dose down. Paroxetine can be quite hard. I've had some patients it's been virtually impossible, you know, even reducing by, you know, two and a half milligrams, you know, uh, over a week, you know, it can get very tricky with some patients. They're, they're, they're few and far between. Um, the, the, the higher the dose patients are on, you really should be, and the longer they've been on the antidepressant, the more you should think of a gradual withdrawal. But, you know, if the patient's been on a smallish dose, it's usually not a big deal. Terrific. Thank you so okay. much. Yeah. And um, I'm sure this will be a great uh, asset for a lot of younger doctors starting out, getting some of those tips on how to manage antidepressants. So thank you. My pleasure, Barry. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.